if you're like me, you're always trying to look good and sharp, right? Whether you're presenting to a board, uh, going to a cocktail party, or doing some other kind of lavish, uh, GQ-esque kind of thing. But who am I kidding? You know, now I'm married. I don't do any of those things. I just hang out at home most of the time. But the point is, looking your best is important. So not all of us have the money to spend on buying new suits. The best thing you can do is just buy a new pocket square. It really upgrades the look. But folding the pocket square and putting it in place really is a pain until now. PS Mister has come up with the pocket square snap. It's the world's number one way to fold and hold a pocket square. It's a beautiful metal card with two magnets that you use to hold and fold your pocket squares into place. So head over to psmister.com, use the code MINDLOOM, M-I-N-D-L-O-O-M, all one word for 27% off your entire purchase. Hello, everyone. My name is Omar M. Khatib, and this is the first episode of the MindLoom podcast. Um, it's really a collection of work uh, that I've put together, uh, pulling from some of the greatest minds in the world, uh, old, ancient books, uh, research, really to synthesize it down into actionable wisdom. Um, and so why, why am I putting this podcast together? Um, you know, for a few reasons. You know, most people, and that includes myself, we tend to be very slow learners. And the reason why is that we have a very fixed mindset that essentially doesn't want to adapt to what's considered a feedback analysis. Um, you know, in terms of like, is the model that I have in my head the best one? Is Do I have the, the, the best information to make decisions and, and actions? And a, and a reason for that at least a lot of people are like this, is that they have a simple stubbornness and, and, and a delusion in terms of wishing that the world was like their fantasies instead of having the courage to get as close as possible to what the truth could be. And that could be a variety of things. So before moving forward, I, I would highly recommend, because of the kind of books that I'm going to dive into right now and, sh- and the notes that I'll be sharing with you, they're rather dangerous. Um, and I say that they're dangerous because they they will, like they'd had the effect on me, they will rearrange the way you look at the world. They're going to rearrange the mental models that are in your head and, and, if anything, rip out the fabric of a lot of the things that you've kind of held on to. I think it's a good thing because it will remove a lot of veils and filters and for you to really see yourself and get closer to who you are and, as a result, help you kind of beautify things around you. Now that being said, um, you know I want to share a little interesting background before we dive into it. Um, you know there was once a, a Nobel Peace Prize winner named uh, Joseph Stiglitz, who is uh, did some research in economics, and his research pretty much confirmed that you know what keeps nations and communities and individuals poor for the majority of their life is, is not primarily a lack of capital. Uh, or, or, real, or opportunities, which is what we like to believe, the root um, is actually a lack of knowledge, and more specifically, a lack of knowledge on how to gain more knowledge. Um, learning, as I've come to find, is, is really an art and a skill. My background is that I'm a former biologist. Uh, I, I was in medical school until I left, and when I left medical school, I entered the medical device um, industry, specifically surgical robotics, now predictive health. And so I had to do a lot of learning and unlearning 
and just devouring knowledge um, even more, even more uh, than I actually did, did in medical school. Uh, and I've, I've really come to embrace uh, this idea and, and uh, if anything, a belief that I feel that the, the people who are illiterate, uh, at least in our generation now, are not necessarily those who cannot read or write, but more so those who cannot learn, unlearn, and relearn. Um, you know, to truly create and contribute to the world around us, and this is something that Maria Popova at Brain Pickings has spoken about, and I, I, I like the way she approaches this, is that we have to be able to essentially connect uh, countless dots of data and information um, and, and cross-pollinate ideas from a wealth of different areas and disciplines, and then combine and recombine these sort of these pieces and then build new ideas from them. And so that's what this podcast is about. It's about the information, the knowledge and wisdom that I found through these books, these the research, um, individuals and, and really synthesizing it down so I can help connect those dots for you and we'll be jumping around quite a lot uh, but I assure you it'll be quite quite an experience so to really kind of settle in you know I'm here in my home in Silicon Valley and uh, you know I'm gonna go ahead and uh, make this kind of a interesting and special night so we're gonna go ahead and light a light a candle and really set the mood here soon as I can light one actually there we go so I got a nice cedar scent candle got a nice woodsy smell and you know since it's a Saturday night I'd figure what the heck why not have a little bit of a little drink with this so I'm gonna have some Buffalo Trace. It's a very nice Kentucky straight bourbon. I'll do a little bit more than that. And some of the writing instruments and tools that I like to use, um, I'm using karst uh, Stone Paper, it's a fantastic company uh, that makes uh, all their journals um, out of stone. And for my, one of my favorite writing instruments is uh, a Quran Ash pen. It was actually gifted to me by uh, the son of a, a very, very wonderful man um, when I was at my uh, first surgical robotics company. So that being said, let's get into it. So what is tonight's topic about? Well, tonight's topic is really sort of a primer on Jungian psychology. So Carl Jung um, is, you know, considered like one of the great psychologists of our time. Uh, and his concepts of the collective, unconscious, archetypal personality patterns, um, things that have to do with extroversion, introversion, many of you are familiar with like the Myers-Briggs test and ENTJ and those kind of personality tests. You know, a lot of that has been derived from his work um, and his really his masterful investigations of the roots and meanings of dreams um, really have had a profound and far-reaching influence on people, definitely with me. Um, and so 
I'd like to share with you some things that I learned from him, but also, you know, loom together some other pieces of uh, uh, knowledge from a few other books, which I'll mention towards the end of the show. But I would say that what we're about to get into is something that's going to help you see something that you could not see before and bring essentially those visions to you so you could see a little bit more clearly. Uh, genius, I feel, you know, has the tendency, or at least geniuses develop, uh, rather, their most brilliant ideas uh, and original thoughts through self-imposed cognitive dissonance. And what that means is when you're able to have or to hold two opposing ideas in your mind at the same time. Uh, and so why is that important? Because what I'm about to share with you right now is going to, and again, like I mentioned, if you're not prepared for this mentally, I would highly recommend you just turn this off. But the quality, the quality of your life is going to be reflected in the quality of questions you ask yourself. And so when we get to the root of it, when we're able to ask questions that we have to dig very deep on, to find answers to or even get a glimpse of, glimpse of, and more importantly, not necessarily answers, but as close to the truth as we can, at least in my estimation, we, we're better for it. So, let's get into it. I'll pull out some of my notes here. I'm sitting at my kitchen table and I'm just surrounded with uh, stacks of some of my journals and of course books for reference. Now what I want to get into is the structure of personality and, and Jung uh, developed uh, this structure and, and, and based it on, on archetypes. Now the mind uh, through its physical counterpart the brain so you know, again, your brain is the physical part, but the mind is, is something that's developed. Uh, the mind inherited characteristics that pretty much determine ways in which a person is going to react in life uh, and to experiences. And it's even going to determine what type of experiences that we're going to have. So the mind of a, of a person is really prefigured to evolution. And as a biologist and a, sci a scientist at heart, this is something that definitely resonates with me. Thus, human beings are really linked with their past. And, and when I say past, it's not only your past to your infancy from when you were a baby, but more importantly, uh, with the past of your ancestors and, and, and the species and human race. You know, before that, with the long stretch of organic evolution. And what Jung did was place the psyche within the evolutionary process. And by doing this, I, I would say that this is one of Jung's like biggest achievements. A, you know, a good example of this is that even though it's you know 2018, we, we inherit this predisposition uh, to have a fear of snakes and, and the dark because our primitive ancestors, they, they experienced these kind of fears for countless generations and and they became engraved on us you know if you think about it when you're walking down the street and you hear a stick break you get tense but we don't live in a time when there are saber-toothed tigers anymore but we still get tense you know we don't like the dark because the dark is the unknown 
And that's not something that we've developed. That's something that's been ingrained in our DNA. So, you know, as I mentioned before, fear is something that can develop quite easily um, if the predisposition to feel fear already exists in what's called the collective unconscious. Now, in the collective unconscious and in the conscious, there's a variety of archetypes, and this is something that's really central to Jung's work, and I'm going to share with you four archetypes to the mind, and being acquainted with these four archetypes is enough to really shift the way you look at the world and more importantly look at yourself. So like I mentioned, these ideas are dangerous. And they're dangerous because they will they will rip out the fabric of what you hold to be, at least in your mind, the truth. But that's the point of these of this podcast. So the contents, the contents of the collectious uh, collective unconscious are, are called archetypes. The word archetype, it means an original model after which other similar things are, are patterned. Um, a synonym to this, you can think of this as, as a prototype. So Jung spent a lot of time, uh, you know, and to be more precise, about 40 years, I believe, you know, investigating and writing about this. And, you know, a lot of these archetypes that he's written about, you've probably heard about them. Things that we've seen in movies and plays, it's definitely in like Disney movies, old biblical stories, religious stories, you know, archetypes around birth, rebirth, death, power, magic, the hero archetype, that's that's something we're familiar with hearing, the demon archetype, god archetype, wise old man archetype, mother earth archetype, um, you know, and a lot of things that have to do with nature. So, even though these are separate uh, structures in the collective unconscious, they, they form combinations. Um, for example, if you took, let's say, a demon archetype and combine it with a hero archetype, what you end up, you know, with, the, with is a very ruthless leader. Uh, and with archetypes, they're universal, you know, and, and at least for me, this is how I became more interested in them. This is something that it's not unique to the Western world or Eastern world. It's something that every person, everyone inherits, and they inherit the same basic archetypal images. You know, every infant throughout the world, they inherit a mother archetype. And so, and I'm just thumbing through my notes here, and I'm going to get a couple of texts out just as reference from Jung. So I'm referencing a couple of books from Jung, and I have my notes along with me. So the thing that I want to get into is the the four basic archetypes that, that make up the mind. And these are the ones that play the most important role in everyone's personality. And so the four archetypes are the persona, the anima and animus, the shadow, and the self. And I know that it sounds like I mentioned five, but the anima and animus, you have either one or the other. And so just keep listening and you'll find very soon which one you might have. So let's start off with the persona. So what, the, what does the word persona mean? Well, the, pers the persona, it means a mask. And it's, it's 
originally, you know, it's a mask that's worn by an actor, and this enabled him to, you know, portray a specific role. Um, in Jung's, in Jungian psychology, the persona archetype serves a similar purpose. It, it, it enables somebody to kind of portray this character that's not necessarily their own, and I think we've all related to this. The persona is kind of like this mask or facade that is displayed publicly, it's outward facing, with the intention of presenting a favorable impression so that society will accept, you know, the person. You know, you can also think of it as a conformity archetype. So, the thing about archetypes, and that this is again, this is why we all have it, no matter who you are, is that they have to be advantageous to the individual and to the, to the human race, otherwise they would not have become part of you know, man's inherent nature. And the persona is necessary to survival, just like other archetypes. It enables us to get along with people, even those we really dislike, um, and in a very good manner. And, you know, if you think about your day-to-day -day job, you can see how you use a persona there. You know, it can lead to personal gain and achievement. The, the basis, the basis um, for this is, is, is social and community life. So let's take an example, and I might, you know, actually default to this example. This is one that I can, you know, more or less, you know, relate to well, but, you know, I don't mean to pick on it, but let's just go with the corporate world. And let's just use a young lady as an example. So let's say there's a young lady who gets a job, a young woman. A young woman gets a job in a very large corporation. Um, and in order to get ahead, she, she has to find out what role is expected of her. Let's say that she's a manager. Um, it'll probably include, you know, personal characteristics such as, like, you know, grooming, right? Clothing that you have to wear, um, you know, the type of manners you have. And this is, you know, both for men and for women. As a man, you know, you get a job. Um, you Some places, you can't walk in with a huge beard and long hair and shorts. You know, you have to be, for example, in a suit. So grooming, clothing, manners is part of that persona. Um, it's also, you know, included in this is to understand relationship with the people that uh, you report to. Uh, maybe your political opinions, even the neighborhood you end up living in, the kind of car you have, um, you know, a number of things that are deemed important for the corporate image. And again, it just depends on which company you're in. So, as the saying goes, if this person plays their cards right, they'll win the game. And what's the game? The game is to climb the corporate ladder to the type of hierarchy. And of course, Regardless of who you are, whether you're an entry-level employee or a VP, if you perform your work well, you're very industrious, and by industrious I mean you you do what is expected of you, and you don't deviate from that. You're diligent, you're responsible, uh, and and very importantly, you're dependable, right? You have dependable uh, results that you call out. Um, these qualities um, are part of the persona. And a young man or woman who can't uh, wear the mask of the corporate image is inevitably going to find themselves being passed over for advancement, um, or they're going to get fired. Now, another advantage of the persona is that 
the material rewards it brings can be used to lead to a more uh, satisfying and perhaps you know more natural private life. So the employee who let's say wears the corporate masks nine to five, you know, can take it off when he or she leaves the office and engage in more activities that are in activities that are more uh, fulfilling to them. Uh, one example that I, I found in, um, in another book that I can't seem to find around me, but um, is Franz uh, Kafka. Franz Kafka was a very uh, uh, famous writer, and he worked uh, very diligently and consciously for a state insurance office during the day, and at night he spent his evenings writing and pursuing cultural activities. And he confessed repeatedly that he hated his work, but the people that he reported to, his superiors, his boss, would have never have guessed this feeling from him um, based on the way he applied himself to the requirements of the job. And, you know, a lot of people, and there's nothing, there's not, this is not a bad thing, they lead dual lives, one which is domesticated, or, do, or not domesticated, dominated by the persona, and one which satisfies other psychic needs, you know, and uh, many of you have entrepreneurial needs, you know, you, you have this desire to be an entrepreneur, but that doesn't mean that you necessarily have to take this big leap of faith and, and just quit your job with no plan. You can employ the persona during the day of the corporate you. The corporate you wakes up, goes to the job, nine to five, very diligent, dependable, does what, what's told, told of you, and then after five o'clock you go home, you eat a little dinner, and now you can be you can have a different persona on the entrepreneur that you can work on so the guy who you employ during the day is just paying the bills so that the guy at night can pursue his dreams or her dreams to something bigger now as you can tell you know a person can have more than one mask so you know at home you will wear a different mask than what you wear at work you know you might even put a third mask on when you go out to play let's say um, you know, play golf with your buddies, or if you're getting together with your girlfriends for drinks, I mean, whatever it might be, you know, you have a different mask on. So collectively, all these masks contribute to your persona, and you, you pretty much just conform in different ways to different situations. And if, but of course, you know, conformity uh, has always been recognized as an important factor of social life. And you know, this is where I'm going to reference Influence by Robert Cialdini, a book on uh, persuasion psychology. One of the more persuasive things is liking and social proof. So liking means that you are, you know, you, you, if you want to persuade something, you do things that are like them. So if you wear the same clothes, you have similar backgrounds, you're more persuasive. Social proof means, you know, you're persuaded by the tribe. So if a lot of people are doing something, it's a lot more persuasive. If you mind loom that to tribes by Seth Godin, it's the same concept, which is, you know, people like us do things like this. Um, and that's how, this, how the persona works. Now, the role of the persona in the personality uh, can also be very harmful. And this is where it, be, where it gets very dangerous because, you know, it is beneficial, but it can harm you. So what's an example of that? So if a person, say, gets too involved and too preoccupied with the role that they're playing, well, guess what happens? The ego begins to identify solely with this role. And then other sides of your personality are shoved aside. And 
when I say ego, you can look at that as, as what's conscious, right? The ego is something that wants details. The ego that is the thing that says, you know, I don't want to make $50,000 this year. I want to make $100,000, right? And the ego filters things out for us as well. But again, when you wear the persona or one specific mask instead of, let's say, a 9 to 5, it's 24-7. That could be a problem because your ego inflates into it. So a person who does that is, you know, going to essentially be, you know, alienated from their nature. And between this overdeveloped persona uh, and an underdeveloped uh, part of your of the other of the other personalities, it becomes an issue. Now, the reason why this becomes an issue is because if somebody's too involved with their persona, um, the ego's just gonna inflate and identify with it and start shoving other parts of the personality aside. And somebody like this ends up becoming alienated from their own nature. And the problem is that you live in a, in a state of tension because you, know, you have a conflict. You have a conflict between your overdeveloped persona that your ego has inflated into and then the underdeveloped parts of your of the rest of your personality and when the ego identifies with the persona so closely this is called inflation and i'm sure you've heard of the term you know an you know inflated ego so on the one hand you know when a person has an exaggerated uh, sense of self-importance which derives from playing a really uh you know, playing this kind of role so successfully, um, you're you're putting it over on people, and you're and you're 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 essentially lying. You're living a lie all the time. And when when you lie about things like that, you know, you're lying to yourself, and your character de degrades. And you can see this with people. People who, you know, it, I think you often see it with. Uh, Celebrities, like more specifically, I I feel like I've seen it with YouTube stars that they try and um, live this sort of online persona out all all the time, and it and it it can do damage. Uh, and you know, let's just go back to the example of somebody who's living the uh, you know the corporate persona and 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 do, you know sort of playing that role very closely. Somebody like that's going to end up projecting that role on other people, uh, and that's a problem because you start demanding that they play the same role. I'm sure many of you who are listening have had a boss in the past who wears that persona, uh, the corporate persona mask so often, they project it on you. They might come to you and say, well, um, I heard that you went out this weekend and uh, or I saw some photos let's say on your Instagram of you and your friends having beers and uh, you know that's not very professional you shouldn't do that right and people like that I would I would recommend really keeping an eye out for them because they can make your life really miserable very fast um, you know 
another example of this is that parents parents they they have a tendency to do this with with their children you can see some very overbearing parents doing this uh, and the problem is that that has very unfortunate consequences uh, you know customs and laws and community that relate to personal conduct uh, that's another uh, area and you can see that as kind of an expression of a group persona so if you grew up uh, a certain de dom denomination of let's say religion you know people in that community they have a a group persona that's imposed on individuals you know um, you know and they they pretty much try and impose that sort of uniform way of life and standards of behavior on the whole group and the at least my problem with that is that it has absolutely no regard for the needs of the individual. Um, you know, it's one thing that Jung noted is that the hazards to mental health from inflation of the persona, you know, are, are obviously pretty self-evident and it's a dangerous thing. So let's look at the other side of that. So the victim of inflation can also suffer from feelings of, say, inferiority, you know, and, and low self-esteem and respect when they're essentially unable to live up to the standards that are expected of them. You know, I think you, some people you see that in, in the work workforce, but most definitely is something that's more commonly seen with people who have uh, parents or let's say a community who has an overinflated persona. Um, and what's interesting is that Jung actually had a lot of time and opportunity to study the effects of an inflated persona because so many of his patients were actually victims uh, of that. You know, they were people who um, who often had great accomplishments, but then they realized that their lives were pretty much empty and meaningless. Uh, you know, and in analysis, uh, they began to realize that they had been essentially deceiving themselves for years. Um, and again, the problem with this is that when you when you do that, it's one thing to wear a persona. But if it's something that, that is so foreign to your character, but you your ego drives you to, to pursue it, you know, your character will de degrade and, and quite dramatically. Uh, and and when, you, when people like that have that moment of realization, they find that they've been hypocritical about their feelings and interests uh, and that they pretend to be interested in things in which they really were not interested in, in them all. There's an old saying that um, sometimes those who pursue a certain type of success are pursuing things that they never cared about to impress people they never respected, all to attain positions and a, and a lifestyle that will never make them happy. So it's a very dangerous thing and you have to sort of step back and ask yourself, are you that person? And a question like that definitely definitely requires a small little break for a little little sip of bourbon so people who are often like this they um, you'll see them having like a midlife crisis for example because of the uh, inflated persona uh, came to a head with things now the you know, how do you treat something like that? So if you're listening and, and you just realize, oh no, that's that's me, you know, here's here's a treatment. You have an overinflated persona, you, you just have to, you know, and it's kind of self-evident, you have to make sure, you have to make your persona deflated in order to get the other side, sides of your, um, 
nature and your personality to assert themselves. Um, the problem is that this is a very difficult undertaking uh, for somebody um, who's essentially been identifying with that persona for many years. Uh, this is where, and again, this is just my personal recommendation that, and I'm not uh, a physician or anything or a therapist, but if that was if that was me, if that were me, I would I would seek professional help. Uh, go go to a psychologist, go to a therapist. Um, I, I I would imagine life coaching could help, um, but it just depends on how deeply inflected those wounds are. But uh, you know, I think for professionals who are listening to this who identify, you know, one mistake that you might make, and I, I put myself in this category, is that we're not. Um, we're not very good at asking for help. We try and shoulder things on our own. So when that happens, you know, that, that can make an undertaking like this very difficult. So seek, seek professional help. So the discussion of an inflated persona suggests that it's better for one's psychic health to be a conscious hypocrite uh, than an unconscious one. Just that is, as it's better really to deceive others than to deceive oneself. And ideally, you know, there really should be no hypocrisy and no deception uh, of any kind. Uh, for better or for worse, however, the persona is a fact of human existence and it must find expression, and preferably in a modest form. And, you know, that this note that I have here was taken out of uh, one book that's on a primer on Jung. Now, I think what the authors were trying to uh, get at here was that you shouldn't be deceiving others. But if you had to err on the side of deception, it's better to deceive someone else than to deceive yourself because deceiving yourself can essentially inflict more wounds and damage to others than just deceiving others. But again, you know, mold your persona so that in its existence, it's an expression of, of authenticity and, and, and one that is modest. Um, again, the whole idea of this podcast is to get as close to the truth as possible. Because if you don't go after that which is true, that which is uh, true to your character, your character will degrade. And you'll, you'll send everything around you. Uh, your your environment, your life, the life of others that are close to you into a state of chaos, and and not not a state of chaos that's beneficial that that drives growth and everything, but th the state that essentially degrades everything around it. Now, the second archetype we get to is the anima and the animus, spelled A-N-I-M-A and A-N-I-M-U-S. So Jung uh, called the persona the outward face, okay? So if the persona is the outward face because it's the psyche which the world sees, what would be the inward face? And that he called the anima in males and the animus and females. Now the anima archetype is the feminine side of the male psyche and the uh, animus archetype is the masculine side of the female psyche. Now every person has qualities of the opposite sex 
and not only in the biological sense, okay, uh, that you know both men and women secrete both male and female hormones, but also in the psychological sense of attitudes and feelings. Um, you know, man has developed his anima archetype by continuous exposure to women, and not just in his lifetime, but over many, many, many generations. And we're talking about hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years. And a woman has developed her animus archetype by her exposure to men. Now, through living and interacting with one another for generations, each sex uh, pretty much acquired characteristics uh, of the opposite sex. and. This facilitated certain responses, uh, and and of course it drove an understanding of the other sex. So you can say that the animus and animal archetype, very much like the persona, have a strong survival value. Because again, if you take a um, evolutionary and Darwinistic approach to this, and which you should, you know, things last because they have a survival value to, to them and if you think about you know your DNA if you look at your if you think about the human mind and you peel away the the cortex and you get away you peel away the emotional brain you get down to the brain stem the primitive brain it, it's really driven by what you can what, what's called the four F's feeding fighting fleeing and fornication and what do those all have to do those all have to do with survival more importantly the survival of one's genes and over time in history, if you look through a variety of different scientific texts, you realize that survival um, really came down to having a relationship to, to two things, a healthy relationship with food and a healthy relationship with danger. Um, and that really is what sort of dictates what, what's able to survive and thrive and what doesn't. So getting back to it so if the personality let's say is to be really well adjusted and and we can we can call it harmony we'll say it's harmoniously balanced the feminine side of a man uh, a man's personality and the masculine side of a woman's personality have to have the opportunity to express themselves in both conscious behavior um, and uh, or, or in consciousness and in behavior so Let's take the example. Let's say, what if a man only exhibits his masculine traits, right? And, and me, I'm, I'm I was born in Texas, and there's definitely a lot of guys there um, who just only express their masculine traits. The problem is that a man like that, uh, his feminine traits, they remain in the unconscious, and therefore, these traits remain pretty much underdeveloped and, and primitive. That's the problem. That's the thing about when things go into the unconscious and they don't have an opportunity to consciously express themselves. They go into an underdeveloped and primitive state. And this gives unconscious a quality of weakness and impressionability. Um, and that's why if you think about the most manly and masculine man you can think of, they're actually very often weak and, and, and submissive inside. Uh, if you look at a woman, and again, you know some of these things that I'm mentioning, I, I know that there are some listeners who 
may find this uh, a little too much to digest. It might be offensive, but you know, in order in order to think, you have to risk the chance of being offensive. And I'm not asking for people to like these things. I'm asking for, to be open-minded and learn them. And again, uh, to be clear, these aren't these aren't my opinions. These are, this is a collection of, of my notes and, and summaries from a variety of texts, and more specifically from Carl Jung's work. So if you find something better than that, please uh, please do share, but it, it's highly doubtful. Um, so to get back on track, so with a woman, a woman who exhibits uh, excessive femininity in her external life with no opportunity to express the masculine side, usually will have unconscious qualities of just absolute stubbornness or willfulness, uh, qualities that are often present in a man's behavior. And it'll, and it'll find a way to manifest itself that way. Now, every man carries with him the eternal image of a woman, not necessarily the image of like one particular woman, but sort of a definite feminine image. Um, and this image is fundamentally unconscious and a hereditary factor of what you can call kind of like a primordial origin that's engraved. We'll say that it's engraved, and actually maybe I would even go further to say it's ingrained in the living organic system of a man. Um, you know, and an imprint or an archetype of all the ancestral experiences of the female. Uh, and we can say with that, it's all the impressions that came along with it. And so since an image like that is unconscious, it is always unconsciously projected upon the person of the beloved. And is it's one of the chief reasons for passionate attraction or aversion. And that, that came from Jung's work, volume 17, on page 198. So what is Jung saying here? Well, he, what he's saying is that man inherits image of woman and he unconsciously establishes certain standards uh, that will strongly influence his acceptance or or say rejection of a specific type of woman now the first projection of the anima is always on the mother uh, just as the first projection of the animus is on the father uh, later we'll stick with the man for now um, he's going to project uh, He's going to project that on on women who who kind of uh, arouse feelings in a in him in a positive or negative sense, and I've I've sort of asked myself this same question like, do I do I do those same things? And and I, I found myself doing that. Um, so if he express you know so when I've ex you know experienced a passionate attraction, and you know the woman is undoubtedly you know has uh, the same traits as my as my anima image of a woman. You know, I'm, I'm recently married and I kind of evaluated why did I get engaged to my wife and it's because she has certain qualities of my anima image of a woman. And that's a collection, of course, not only of, say, you know, positive qualities of women that I've interacted with, say, like my, uh, my mother, my aunts, but also, you know, women who I've been interacting with in in life, but also there's deeply, deeply seated things in the anima that women who I've never interacted with, and there's qualities about my wife that I've never experienced or interacted with from a, from any woman, 
but for some reason I somehow knew that I that I was very attracted to those kind of qualities and now conversely uh, I've experienced aversion to certain women uh, because of you know because they possess conflicting qualities to my unconscious anima image um, you know, same events take place for, for a woman's projection on a man. So although a man, let's say, could have numerous reasons for being attracted to a woman, and that's that goes for me and my wife. I had many reasons to be attracted for her. A lot of those reasons were actually secondary ones. And for the primary reasons that are set forth in the unconscious, those are the reasons why I was attracted to her. And it's the primary reasons why you, if you're a man listening to this, would be attracted to a certain woman. Um, you know, and men in general, you know, they, they def we can all admit this, we've attempted to have numerous relationships with women over the years uh, that were contrary to the anima image. And we can all admit that those all failed miserably. Um, and inevitably, they just result in dissatisfaction and a lot of antagonism. Unfortunately for me, I was smart enough early in my age to recognize that, and I figured out very quickly the kind of women that I wanted to stay away from. Those of you who are listening, you, you might, it, this might be you even, or you might have a friend who's in a relationship with a woman and, they, and they just, they're just absolutely miserable with them. They, they complain about them, they dislike them, etc., but they just keep staying with them. And you know, that's a woman who embodies the opposite qualities of the anima image that, that you might like. So why are you staying with them? Well, one answer might be you might have an inflated ego. And an inflated ego into what? Into the persona. And so you might be wearing a persona or a mask that you've identified too closely with, and that's overtaken. And again, what happens when you overinflate any part of the archetypal uh, portions of the personality or mind, everything else is shoved aside, right? So you have an inflated ego that goes into an inflated persona and say that your, as a man, your anima is shoved to the side, then you're staying with someone merely because it fits the story that you've told yourself as to what that mask you're wearing is. If you're a woman, it's the same thing. And again, I'm not a therapist, but I would recommend that you get out of a relationship like that quickly because you're only going to bring chaos and dissatisfaction and antagonism not only to yourself but to the other person. Again, the quality of questions that you're able to ask yourself in this life you know, is going to reflect the quality of life that you're going to live. Now, Jung, Jung says that the anima has a preconceived liking for everything that is, again, this is Jung, not me, but things that are vain, helpless, uncertain, and unintentional in women. And that's not to say that women are all vain, helpless, uncertain, and unintentional. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that the anima in men tends to be attracted to things that are vain, uncertain, and unintentional. And it could be because of the archetype, archetype of, you know, of a hero, for example. Now, the animus in women chooses to identify with men who are heroic and intellectual, artistic, or athletic celebrities. And again, I'm not saying that all men are like that. What I'm saying is that the animus in women tends to have a preconceived liking to men who are heroic, 
intellectual, artistic, or athletic celebrities. Again, I'm going to reference uh, or you know sort of mind loom this to uh, influence by Chialdini. This is where the liking uh, principle is very persuasive. We tend to like people, and this is not just for women, but it, but men as well. We tend to like people who not only like us, but people who are better than us, who are more attractive, uh, intellectual, and artistic, athletic. So we said earlier that you know people suffer from an inflated or overdeveloped persona, right? And we talked about the, the danger of that. So what's the opposite condition? So the opposite condition is often more true of the anima or the animus. So like I mentioned before, especially in our society today, these archetypes are often deflated and underdeveloped. And if we look at Western civilization uh, and just take the, you know, living here in the U.S., one of the reasons... Um, seems to be that we place a high value on conformity and we often disparage things like femininity in men and masculinity in women. I think we, we're, we're making strides to change that and, and, and realize that that's, a, that's not the best way to look at things, but it still happens. And, and unfortunately, this disparagement it, you know, starts to occur, or you see it in childhood, you know, when, let's say... Uh, Boys who are identifying closely with their anima, anima are called sissies, or girls who are identifying strong with their animas are called tomboys, and they're ridiculed for it, and it's wrong. You know, um, and then boys in general are really expected to conform, to, you know, to a culturally specified masculine roles, and girls to a feminine role. Thus, you know, what happens is that the persona starts to take precedence over this, and then stifles the anima or animus. So. You know, that's why I think it's important um, to sort of explore these things. And that, and, and, and that doesn't mean to, you know, overinflate, let's say, the anima in men or overflate the animus in females or in women. Because then you end up with the, you know, the same problem again. You're overinflating a different archetype. Shifting some books around a bit. Now, now looking at my notes, I, I'm, ex I'm quite excited because we've we've come to the archetype that, that really, really got me interested because it's, um, it's an archetype that's very dangerous, and one that we don't like to talk a whole lot about and it explains a lot of atrocities in, in life and a lot of breakthroughs in genius and that archetype is called the shadow again this is a definitely a good moment to take a little sip of some bourbon as we get a little deeper into the archetype that is the shadow So the anima or animus, as we said, is projected on the opposite sex, and it's responsible for the qualities of relationship between the sexes. So 
the other archetype that represents one's own gender and influences a person's relationships with his own sex is called the shadow archetype. Now, here's why I found this to be most interesting, is, is that the shadow, the shadow contains some of our most basic animalistic nature, and more so than any other archetype. And because of its extremely, extremely deep roots in evolutionary history, it's probably the most powerful and potentially most dangerous of all the archetypes. It's, it's the source that um, is the best and worst in human beings, especially in relationships uh, with others of the same sex. So, in order for a person to become an integral member of a community, uh, we talked about how a persona has to be developed, a mask. In parallel to that, it's very necessary to tame the shadow and the animal spirits that it contains. Now, uh, this, con this taming is, again, it's... It, it's accomplished by suppressing the manifestations of the shadow, those animalistic instincts, and by developing a very strong persona, which is developed, you know, again, through one's surroundings, culture, community. It's the mask that we wear. We wear multiple ones. Um, and the strong persona counteracts the power of the shadow. So the person who, who suppresses the animal side of his nature may become civilized. And this is where it gets a little, a little dark, and and frightening. But he's going to do that at the expense of decreasing uh, something very powerful within them. And what he decreases is the motive uh, power for 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 spontaneity, um, things like creativity, uh, strong emotions, deep insights. This is primal wisdom. It's suppressed and and. When you do that, you, you're cutting yourself off from the wisdom that, that, are, that are instinctual to your nature. You know, it's a wisdom that, that, that could be more profound than anything that you could ever learn from a book or a culture could provide. You know, and a shadowless life tends to become very shallow and spiritless. Uh, you know... One book that, you know, this reminds me of, and actually I'm going to walk away from uh, the desk for a moment because it's up on one of my bookshelves. So we're going to walk upstairs for a moment. Um, here we are. So I'm pulling one book to share on, on The Shadow, and this is a book that I read... Uh, many years ago, actually, is when I left my first uh, first job uh, at a robotic company, and uh, I'd found out my role had been dissolved, and I had an opportunity to stay. But I decided, um, you know, I, I I went home and I I couldn't make up my decision as to what to do. And I read this book that morning just by. Actually, I, I don't think things ever happen by coincidence. Um, you know, the, the day that I found out my role was dissolved, I read a book, and this is the book that I pulled out called Living in the Light. It, it looks like a, 
sort of a new age hippie book, but it's actually not. It's it's by Shakti Guan, and it's all about how do you follow your intuition. And you know, the intuition, at least to me, um, it it's it it it's a spirit that tends to um, express itself towards like expansiveness, uh, risk taking, and change. You know, and the form tends towards you know what it perceives to be um, things that are dangerous, right? And so, for our persona, our persona will always push us towards things that are safe and secure, uh, and and what you could call the status quo, because it's the basic task to make sure again, like we survive. That's why the persona archetype still exists, and so it fears that change might lead to disaster or death. Um, you know, many of you may have heard of like the primitive or lizard brain, and that's the thing that freaks us out. So, you know, on one side, uh, you do have the persona which is molded by cultures and society, you know, but I would say a close partner to that is is the lizard brain. Um, and who knows, you know, uh, the lizard, so, that, you know, we're talking about, when we look at Jung's work, we're talking about the mind, something that's formless. You know, you can't really point to a certain area of the mind. When we talk about the brain, we can talk about the lizard brain. So maybe, you know, maybe the persona is something that is that exists and is developed within the primitive lizard brain. We don't know. But, you know, I bring that down because, you know, the intuition to me is, is what the shadow is. Um, and if you if you need a little bit more clarity on what that means you know think of the last time you met someone and you barely knew them but just something something about them didn't make you comfortable and you might have said in your mind not in a judgment way but this person's a liar right that's what intuition says your ego is the one that comes out and says this person's a snake lying son of a bitch weasel you know the ego. The ego adds the details, but your intuition just says this person's a liar. And I'm and I'm sure you felt like, oh, why would I say that? I have no reason to think that way. You know, but intuition it, it exists for a reason, right? And the more you interact with somebody who, let's say, is just is a liar, you know, your intuition just gets stronger and stronger, and it just gnaws at you because again, you're lying to yourself, and your character will degrade. So the shadow. And again, let's get back on track here. You know, so mind looming that back, you know, intuition and shadow. So the shadow is persistent, but the problem is that it it does not yield easily to suppression. You know, and let me let me uh, pull one one other text, and I'm gonna pull pull another text on Young because I want to make sure I I get this example down. So this can be illustrated by, by this example. A farmer. I want you to imagine a farmer. A farmer might be inspired to be a poet. And inspirations are always, let's say, the work of the shadow. So the farmer doesn't think that inspiration of being a poet is really feasible at the time. And, and he might decide, like, hey, you know, because of his persona, 
as a farmer is too strong, he rejects it. He rejects the shadow. And what happens when we reject a part of our archetype? It go into the unconscious. So the idea keeps plaguing him more and more because of the persistent pressure that's exerted by the shadow. Again, the shadow is considered to be one of the strongest of the archetypes. So each time it reoccurs, he, he just keeps putting it aside. He's like, no, I don't want to be a poet. I need to be a farmer. That's the persona that I have. But finally, one day, the farmer will just give in and turns from farming to writing poetry. And undoubtedly, there were secondary circumstances that probably promoted this kind of decision. Uh, but the most powerful influence definitely has to be credited to the shadow. Um, because it's persistent. It, it will not give up. And it, it will keep reasserting the idea um, after it's been rejected several times. And maybe that's why the shadow exists. If it's intuition that's very wise, right? We see, you know, animals have, you know, instinct. You can say intuition is like instinct. It's our, it's our animal instinct. And that's probably, that might explain why it's so strong. Um, the shadow, you know, in this respect is is important and valuable as an archetype because it has the capacity to retain and assert ideas or images that may turn to be very advantageous uh, to the individual um, and because of its tenacity you know it could really thrust a person into a more satisfying and creative activities now the shadow definitely has to be tamed because you can't be um, you know just constantly going off into creative activities nothing ever gets done you do need order and i think that's what the persona brings so when when your ego and the shadow work in very close harmony it's it's quite beneficial i'm gonna pull back a couple of notes the problem the problem with uh with the notes is that sometimes they're not always as detailed as the books, but the problem with the books is that I, I would have to jump back and forth. So we're gonna keep jumping back and forth between these notes and books. And again, I'll leave a list of the books in the, in the notes. So getting back, when the shadow and the ego work closely together, the ego will, you know, the ego channels instead of obstructs the force uh, coming from the shadow or these instincts. Uh, consciousness ends up being expanded and then there's a liveliness and vitality to your mental activity and not only just to mental activity and I've experienced this but the, but you feel physically more alive and vigorous so it's not surviving uh, surprising that you'll see creatives or creative people they, they seem to be filled with a very lively and strong animal image so much so that sometimes in some cases you know Let's say, let's go back to the person who's, who's got the strong corporate persona. To somebody with a strong corporate persona, the people who really have strong shadows um, come off as freaks. Uh, and, you know, there is some, some truth, you know, to the relationship between genius and pure madness. Uh, the shadow of, say, a really creative person could overwhelm uh, the ego from time to time, and, and this could cause somebody to appear as if they're temporarily insane. So let's just kind of consider an example. Let's say the fate of uh, 
what we can say is an evil or very nefarious elements that exist within the shadow. So somebody like that might think that when evil elements are eliminated from the consciousness, that they're pretty much gone. They're disposed of and, and they'll never come back. This is a problem because that's never the case. They're, they, they're just simply withdrawn. And again, where are they withdrawn to? If you guess the unconscious mind, you are correct. And when they go into the unconscious mind, they remain in this very latent state that's, you know, as long as all is going well in the conscious ego, things are good. But the moment, the moment that someone finds themselves in, in, in the face of a crisis, a very difficult life situation, the shadow will use this opportunity to just absolutely exert its power over a weakened ego. Great example of this, and it's, um, it's a sad one because I know uh, a few friends who have struggled with this with their parents, but take someone who is a compulsive alcoholic who succeeds in overcoming their habit. Okay, so they you have an alcoholic. They go to AA. They they do the steps. They succeed. They're successful. They haven't touched alcohol for many, for many years. And the reasons for them becoming an alcoholic in the first place would then you know when cured be forced to reside where in the unconscious. And those reasons could be a variety of things, but they're laying there in the unconscious, just waiting for the opportunity to express themselves. And this person, let's say they come home and they lost their job that day, walk, walk in and find out that their wife has been cheating on them for 10 years and has left with a lover. Chaos will ensue. This person's state of being just gets thrown into a state of chaos, right? And it, and it spirals out of control. And this is the opportunity that... When it's available, it's a traumatic and adverse and conflict-containing situation that they can't handle. The shadow then steps in with a little, very little resistance from the weakened ego, and then the person just reverts back to alcoholism. The shadow really has quite tremendous staying power. It, it never really surrenders. Um, and the persistent nature of the shadow is, is equally effective when it's promoting something evil or when it's promoting something good. So that's what you have to come to terms with, is, is come to terms with your own demons because they will never really go away. And I've had to come to terms very painfully with some of my own demons that even though I've put them aside, I've suppressed, I've, I've, I've wrangled them in under control, they're still there, they're not going away. And so I've, I've fortunately with, uh, with meditation and I've meditated um, every day uh, for the last three years, I've been able to bring myself to a state where when I'm faced in a state of conflict or disaster, that I double down consciously on my efforts to make sure that I control these various area, areas of the mind and my archetypes. So... Let's talk about when the shadow is, is really suppressed and stringently suppressed by society or religion. And in those cases, it, it doesn't really have any outlets uh, to express itself through. 
So Jung in 1918, you know, towards the end of World War One, Jung observed that the animal in, in us only becomes more beast-like when it's repressed. And he, he went on to say that that is no doubt the reason why no religion is defiled with the spilling of innocent blood as Christianity and why the world has never seen a bloodier war than that of the Christian nations. And that was from volume 10, page 22. And again, uh, for me, I'm, I'm going to say that you can see this quite often, not just in Christianity, but all religions. But if we do look at World War I, you, this is quite evident. And the implications for this observation is that, you know, Christian teachings at that time were very, very repressive of the shadow. Um, same observation can be made um, when you look at World War II, which was even bloodier, and the subsequent wars. You know, in these cases, um, and many others that are cited in history, when when human beings go to war and and through, let's say, religion, have sort of suppressed all that the shadow has to do with, um, you know, a lot of animalistic instincts, the shadow really strikes back. You know, because you're sent in a state of, state of shock. You're in war. You're fighting. You're you're frightened. Your ego is 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 weakened. And at that moment, the shadow steps forward, in you know, almost like a black stallion coming out of the out of the fog, uh, and and overrides things and just strikes back. And in, and this kind of thing just engulfs nations um, with absolute bloodshed. Um, now we've said that the shadow is responsible for. Uh, your relationship with the same sex. So these relations, um, they could be either very friendly or hostile, depending upon um, whether the shadow is accepted uh, by the ego and becomes incorporated harmoniously in the psyche, or whether it's rejected by the ego um, and then banished into the unconscious. So you know, with men, men tend to project their feelings often um, uh, in a very sort of hostile way towards other men when this happens. And the same is the same is true for women. So let's you know, let's dig a little deeper in that. The, the shadow, the shadow contains basic or what you can call, you know, normal instincts, and you know it's the source of very, again, very deep, realistic insights and wisdom. And, and again, as all archetypes are, it has very appropriate responsibles that are that have high value for survival. So, because of that, that's why the shadow has such great importance, you know, to an individual when it comes, you know. When, when the time is needed. When disaster strikes, the shadow steps forward because it's, it's, it's for survival. Um, and so when you're faced with these kind of situations that require like immediate decisions and reaction, you know, and you don't have any time to evaluate um, the situation and think about the most suitable, suitable response, the shadow takes over. Um, that's why when, you know, under certain circumstances, the conscious mind or Again, the ego it becomes stunned uh, by the sudden impact of a situation, and in that case, it allows the unconscious mind, where the shadow is, to deal with it in its very own way. Um, 
you know, for an individual who doesn't express a shadow very often and they end up in, let's say, a physical altercation, they may not have, uh, uh, they may not have any self-control. Um, that's why, you know, for me, I, I trained at a, at a fighting gym for the last couple of years and I've come to realize that fighters are actually those, you know, people who, who not all of them, but a good, the ones that I, I'm thinking of, have really found ways to express the shadow, have a good relation with it, and when an alter physical altercation happens at a bar, they're actually the most calm ones. The people who end up getting in fights are those who have just a suppressed shadow, and the moment that uh, some kind of uh, uh, situation arises and their ego gets crippled and stunned, the shadow takes over and they just start, they just, they just let loose and they cannot be controlled. So. In in summary, you know the shadow the shadow is something that's going to react to threats and danger, um, and it can be very effective. But if if it's been suppressed and repressed in the unconscious and remains undifferentiated, it's going to just surge forth in in your instinctive nature, um, and it's just going to further overwhelm your ego and cause cause you to just collapse into a state of helplessness helplessness so the shadow archetype it's it's the thing that gives a person's personality f uh, you know sort of a full-bodied three-dimensional quality um, it's important to express the shadow and, and find avenues to do that whether it's through art uh, f survival like fighting for example um, you know expressing yourself through through artistic endeavors, um, but it's responsible for your vitality, your creativity, um, wisdom, vigor, um, and, and rejection of your shadow. Um, and often the rejection of a shadow happens when you have a very strong persona or mask that you're wearing. It, it, it turns, in, turns into a very, a very flat personality. Now we've come to the final and fourth archetype, which calls for a little bit, just a little top off of bourbon to end the night. And so let's get into it. The last archetype, the self. So, the concept of the total personality or psyche, um, it, it's the central feature to Jung's work uh, and, and Jung's psychology. So, this wholeness, as pointed out in the discussion of, of the psyche, is not it's not achieved by putting the parts of, of all, all these you know, things together like a jigsaw. Um, it's, the idea of self is really there um, to begin with and, and, and really add wholeness and takes time to mature.
So the organizing principle is what it's called, and the organizing person, uh, principle of the personality is, is the self. The self is the central archetype in the collective unconscious. And you can think of it very much, and I, I have a note on this here, that it's like, it's like the sun. That way the sun is the center of our solar system. The self is kind of the center of our collective unconscious. Um, and it's the archetype that brings order, organization, and unification. Um, it draws to itself and pretty much brings into harmony all the archetypes and their manifestations in, in complexes and consciousness. Um, it, it unites with the personality and it gives it a sense of oneness and firmness. And when the benefit about this is that when you, when you feel a sense of harmony with yourself and the world, uh, you can be sure that the self uh, archetype is performing its work very effectively. But on the other hand, uh, when a person feels, you know, say, out of sorts or, or, or you know, just not themselves, uh, and very much like what Freud mentions in his book, uh, Civilization is Discontents, that you're discontented, you're you have an unhappy lot, um, and feel very conflicted, the self is not doing its job properly. You can you can say that you know sometimes when people they say the saying you know I feel like I'm falling apart or I'm going to pieces. That's that's the self saying that it's not doing its job of unifying. So the ultimate goal of every personality is really to achieve a, a state of selfhood or or, or self realization. Um, and to be honest, it's not a simple undertaking, um, uh, but. It's, it's definitely a very lengthy and uh, complicated task for many reasons. And one thing I want to flip to is, um, is, is Maslow's work, Abraham Maslow, who, who wrote about, the, um, about what motivates uh, human behavior. And I'm just flipping. So, you know, if we look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, if you can imagine a pyramid, um, you know, there are there are five areas to this pyramid. At the very bottom, you have physiological. So you need air, food, water, sex, sleep, you know, um, excretion. <laughs> uh, you know, and again, these are all survival instincts. You just need them. The second thing as you move up the pyramid of, of, of needs or hierarchy needs is safety. So that's like health, Personal well-being, financial well-being, self-employment—or uh, not self-employment. Self-employment is definitely one of them. But to be employed, to be making money, to have security, shelter. Um, so a lot of people here in the in the in the first world, or at least in Western civilization, you have those two quite often. Even here in America, um, most people have that, uh, if not all of them. Uh, but once you start moving up the hierarchy, you get to things like the third. Uh, uh, level is is belonging and that's where you need love intimacy friendship uh, family relationships this is, this level um, of need is usually satisfied with like social networks and, and communities which is why I think social media has become such a powerful thing because you can it satisfies um, one of the hierarchy of needs but as you get higher and again these you know going up Maslow's hierarchy of needs is very difficult 
The fourth level is you know esteem. So having so you know good self-esteem for yourself, self-confidence, self-respect, uh, a sense of achievement. Once you have all those things, you get to what's called self-actualization, and this is really inspired by meta motivators like creativity, uh, justice, beauty, truth, fairness, harmony, individuality, and that's you know. And I think many of us in our own ways, at least I am, I'm trying to, uh, I think I'm oscillating right now between the fourth and fifth uh, level. And I'm trying to get closer to self-actualization, which part of it is getting as close to the truth as possible. Um, so again, this is not a very easy task to do. Uh, and, you know, if you want to look in history, the people who are shining examples of, of achieving that you look, you can look at uh, great leaders uh, like I, I think Gandhi would be one um, religious leaders for example like Jesus and Buddha uh, probably are the ones who come the closest to ever achieving anything like that um, and, and what Jung points out is that the self archetype does not even become really evident uh, until about middle age uh, and the reason why is that the personality hasn't become fully developed through what he calls individuation uh, and that needs to happen before the self can become uh, developed en enough to manifest uh, with a degree of completeness you know and one thing that I wonder is that you know because so the internet has really helped accelerate the way we learn and develop um, our minds but at the same time, in some ways, it feels like it's stifled uh, maturity and development. You know, one way you can see this is that, you know, as an example, um, you know, people are spending more longer time in school. They're uh, waiting longer to uh, start their careers, um, start families. And so I wonder if, if the development of the mind and personality has also been shifted. So if midlife... Um, in Jung's time is let's say uh, around let's say the mid 30s is midlife now maybe closer to 40 45 I don't know so but achieving a state of, of, of self-realization it depends largely upon the cooperation of the ego and the reason why is that if the ego ignores messages from the self archetype um, and an appreciation understanding of the self would just be impossible. Um, and so if you think about the anima and animus and the shadow and the persona, if the self is the thing that's unifying them and the ego is the thing that filters things out and, and its consciousness, the ego cannot get along with the self. It's It's achieving self-realization is going to be impossible so everything everything in, in Jungian psychology and you can just think about this in general but in order for something to have an effect it has to become conscious um, and knowledge knowledge of the self it's 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 really accessible um, right away through a very interesting format and, and that's something that Jung is also very keen on studying, and that's the studying of one's dreams. And I know that might sound surprising, 
But if you think about your dreams, you know, they're not random. Uh, something random would be me staring at a blank uh, uh, laptop screen or, or a blank phone screen. That That's random. Me turning on my phone and looking at just messages, that's kind of random. But me going to bed at night and having recur a recurring dream, it, it, that's not random at all. It's a very, very sophisticated, complicated thing. And it exists for a reason. That's when you know, the, the unconscious is trying to manifest something to you. It's trying to give you a sign. That's why um, in uh, Steve Pressfield's uh, fantastic book, The War of Art, uh, he talks about tapping into one's creativity. He says that your dreams are for yourself. They're not to be things that you waste energy discussing with other people or, or talking about. It's, it's, a, it's a message for you and you alone. And so I've, I've tried my best to kind of keep a journal next to my bed. And if I wake up at night from a vision or a dream, I write these things down and I try and either research them or, or sort of look and reflect on it in terms of what is my, what is my unconscious you know, trying to communicate to me. So a lot of times, you know, uh, the study of your dreams, you know, more importantly, it's you know it can be done through true religious experiences um, for you to start to understand and realize itself. And when I say religious, I, I don't mean like ideology. You know, it could, religious could be you know the experience you had of a concert, right? Um, in Eastern religions, you know, there there's very uh, interesting rituals and practices they have for achieving the selfhood and. One of them is, is uh, for example, is meditation or yoga. And again, that's part of the reason why I started meditating a few years ago is that it's, um, and for those interested, I, I use Headspace, which I'm a huge supporter and fan of because it, it provides guided meditation. It's an app you can download, um, but it helps me tap into that. And so it sort of really enabled me to perceive the self um, more more quickly than than most most people at least around me, um, and so with Young, when Young speaks about religion, again he's referring to the spiritual development and not you know like supernatural phenomena. Now Young counsels that uh, that less emphasis should be placed on obtaining so uh, total self re uh, realization. So. What you should be so if you're not putting um, if you're not putting all this uh, effort and emphasis on on total self-realization, what should you put your emphasis on? And what you should be putting your emphasis on is is on knowledge, and knowledge of oneself. And so self-knowledge is really the true path to realization. That's why I think meditation is great because it it allows you to start exploring your personality in a very curious and, and open way. And again, not from a egotistical judging uh, standpoint, but a curious way. You know, that's why with your intuition, if you're in a job and someone says, have you ever thought about quitting your job? And deep down inside the feeling, you don't say it, you just feel yes. You shouldn't bury that and say, no, 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 no. I, you know, I, I don't know why that that's there. You should be curious, and, and that should be a flag to yourself to say, why do I feel that way? Because that the intuition 
that you have guided by the shadow it's there for a reason it's very wise so this is a very important distinction because a lot of people who want to fulfill themselves without you know without having this kind of knowledge don't do it and it's funny because a lot of a lot of people I, I've spoken to they they want to have self-realization they they want to um, you know, be happy and have a sense of, you know, a strong character or anything, but they don't even have, like, the slightest idea about themselves. And the problem, and I see this quite often with my generation, is that they want instant perfection, you know. Um, you know, they, they're looking for a miracle that's going to transform them, you know, into the, uh, a fully realized person with, you know, with complete insight and enlightenment. And that's just not how it works. And you know this task, which I'm, I'm, I, it takes a lot of emotional labor and daily emotional labor, is is one that's incredibly arduous and, and, and laborious. And it's it's probably the most uh, uh, difficult task that you're going to face in your entire life. But what I can say, at least in my experience, and again, I'm nowhere near self-realization, but I'm on a path to it. You know. From what I've studied and read and, and, and learned, it seems that discipline, persistent efforts um, are required along with inc an incredibly high amount of responsibility and wisdom. And when I say high responsibility, it's that you, you get close to yourself to understand what you're fully capable of. Because you're fully capable as you know uh, of doing as much evil and bad in this world as, as good, and that's something that's within everybody. And anyone who denies that, either is completely clueless, or in fact they really do believe that. In which case, they're actually probably more dangerous than they even realize. So by making a uh, by making conscious, you know, the things that are not conscious, things that are unconscious, you can definitely live. You know, with a greater harmony with your own nature, um, you're going to experience at least I have. You know, fewer irritations and frustrations because you've recognized the origins uh, of your own unconscious. So, a person who doesn't know their unconscious self-projects these repressed elements uh, of of their unconscious onto others. Um, and again, we've we've talked about people like this. You know, they're going to accuse them. They'll accuse other people for their own unrecognized faults, um, and and thus, you know, they're going to criticize you. There's people that I know that have blamed me for their own shortcomings, and it's blatantly obvious. And when I read more about psychology, it's it's absolutely clear as to why they're like this. So, self awareness really exposes these kind of projections. And I had these projections myself, and the more self-aware I became, the more I realized how I was projecting insecurities, suppressed uh, archetypes within me onto others. And once I, once I came to terms with them, you know, I felt that I, I didn't feel like I was a victim myself. I didn't seek other people to criticize or scorn for, for shortcomings that I had or, or suppressed areas of the unconscious. You know, and my relationships with myself improved, relationships with other people improved, and I felt a lot more a lot more in, in harmony with myself and others. So the self archetype can be described really, you know, if you want to sum it up, as as your inner guiding factor 
um, which is very different from our outer conscious ego. The self, you can say, has a capacity to, to really regulate and govern uh, and influence your personality. And it will help it mature and, and increase its, its perceptiveness. And if you think about it, what's the most amazing thing about the world around us is that, you know, we can create the world around us to be whatever we want. And it's really based on our perceptions. And through the development of, our, of the self, we can become more motivated to increase our awareness and, and improve these perceptions and understanding and, and more importantly, the direction of our life. So the self-archetype really was one of the most important results of Jung's work and his investigations of the collective unconscious. And he discovered the self-archetype after all these intensive studies and writings of all the other archetypes, which makes sense, you know, because once he completed that, he found that the self was the unifying factor. And he concluded, and from volume 7, page 238 of his book, that the self is our life's goal, for it's the completest expression of that fateful combination we call individuality. And to sort of add a cherry to that, we can look at uh, another book called Flow by an author with a very difficult name. I'm gonna try and pronounce it. It's called, and I think I've done this before, uh, Mihai Chiksin Mihai. Um, but the book is called Flow and when the author of Flow talks about the growth of self he says that the growth of self occurs really only in the interaction uh, if the interaction is an enjoyable one when with the self and it offers sort of non-trivial opportunities for action and requires constant perfection of your skills so the true believer of that also becomes part of the system in concrete terms because the psychic energy that they have will be focused and shaped by the goals and rules of his belief. But the true believer is not really interacting with the belief system. He usually lets his psychic energy be absorbed by it. And so what I can say is explore, explore these different versions of the self and the archetypes that that it needs to unify again that that's the persona which is the mask the anima and animus which is the masculine and feminine parts of the personality that every every one of us have um, and then the shadow which is the sort of deep wise creative animalistic part of our of our personality the self unifies it all I'll be leaving uh, notes in the show notes on the books that I was referencing. And so thank you again for joining for this episode. Please uh, leave, a, uh, leave a note or comment on perhaps some books that you'd like for me to review. And I'll see you again next time here at The Mind Loom. Thank you again for tuning in to this week's episode of The Mind Loom. For questions that you'd like to submit, please email mindloomboom at gmail.com. That's mindloomboom at gmail.com.
Hey guys, thanks for listening to the show. So if you consider yourself someone who supports the idea of sharing knowledge and wisdom and supporting readers, please head over to anchor.fm forward slash mindloom and support the show. Proceeds go towards buying books, perhaps having guests on. It's really a fantastic way to do it. Join others in support of the show and just pledge a few bucks a month. I know you can, and I know you'll do the right thing. Thank you again, and I'll see you next time.